Hi, and welcome to another episode of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. And speaking of Lady Justice... Does it strike you as strange that, you know, a woman could be the personification of justice, yet not represented fully in the judiciary? On this episode, examining the female figure that's become the moral face of the court system. We see statues of Lady Justice in courthouses across America, the scales, the blindfold, the sword. The women discuss what the imagery means to them personally after some reflection and scholarly reading. We'll also hear from one of those scholars, Yale professor and co-author of the book Representing Justice, Judith Resnick. She spent years studying the history of Lady Justice and the various ways she's portrayed throughout the world. There's a lot of ways in which courthouses have tried to mark that there are a whole bunch of people walking in the door who didn't look like the people before. Then later, it's a new year, and that means new female faces on our nation's state courts. We'll introduce you to some of them. Welcome back to Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. This is Justice Rhonda Wood from Arkansas. I'm joined again with Chief Justice Bridget McCormick from Michigan, Justice Eva Guzman from Texas, and Justice Beth Walker from West Virginia. Today we're going to delve into a little history and discuss Lady Justice herself or the personification of justice. Lady Justice is a recognized symbol of our justice system. Lady Justice is often associated with ancient Rome, as introduced first by Augusta as the goddess of justice. However, the actual personification of justice derives further back into ancient Egypt. Lady Justice personifies the virtue of justice. I do think it's important to note that throughout different cultures, she's personified differently. For example, she is not always Caucasian, but there are some components that are typical. And as we delve into this podcast, um, my fellow Lady Justices will each discuss the modern day personification of Lady Justice and what it means to us and the rule of law. So let's begin with what everyone identifies probably first with Lady Justice, which is the scales. And we can envision Lady Justice as she holds the scales um, raised in her right hand. So Eva, what do the scales of Lady Justice mean to you? Well, um, I'm looking at it through the eyes of someone who's experienced the justice system it, it, from many different uh, perspectives and in many different places in my life. As um, Eva Guzman growing up in East Houston, and when you think of, for me, Lady Justice means fairness and equality and equal justice under the law. And now as a sitting Supreme Court Justice, I've come to understand the scales and the symbolism and, and what that means as a justice, it's to ensure that as many of our citizens who can't access the courts, who haven't been able to achieve justice when they're facing you know, some of life's most difficult challenges to um, advocate for them so that we can open the courts, so that the scales of justice represent for everyone exactly that, equal justice under the law, fairness and equality. This is Beth, and I'll just respond to Eva's answer about the scales. And I think she perfectly explained how the scales are a constant process. 
Um, you know, a long time ago when the scales were associated with Lady Justice, equality was seen much differently than it is now, but it's a constant ba balancing. And I think, you know, we have to, as justices, constantly be on guard to make sure that we're balancing ourselves, that we're paying attention to, you know, as Eva said, folks who um, need access to the justice system or need to be treated fairly according to the rule of law. So that's just a little amplification of Eva's great answer. So I think that another part of Lady Justice that um, is most recognizable is her blindfold. And interestingly, she did not always have a blindfold um, until later in the 16th century. So Bridget, I'm curious your thoughts about the blindfold and what that means to you. You know, I think the blindfold is the iconic um, symbol of justice being um, blind to who appears in court. So we, so, so the, the legal system responds to everybody in the same way. It doesn't recognize wealth or status or any other advantage that might serve someone well in a different kind of process. That law is different, right? The court is different. It's different from the political branches in that way. Um, it's interesting though, because historically the, the blindfold didn't become common as an accessory for Lady Justice until well into the 17th century. Um, and even then it was, it was, it had sort of a rough start because um, there were very negative um, understandings of the blindfold in, um, in medieval and Renaissance times. People viewed the blindfold not as a symbol of impartiality, which I believe is what most people think of it now, but, but more as um, deception. It, it took a while to, to become to become common, and even you know, well into um, the last century, it wasn't always viewed as um, the symbol that I think most of us think of it as the symbol of impartiality. There's a famous Langston Hughes poem called Justice that's only a four-line poem, and it, it it is that justice is a blind goddess, is a thing which we black are wise. Her bandage hides two festering sores that once perhaps were eyes. So it's controversial even um, uh, well into modern times for certain audiences, but I think most people view it as a symbol of impartiality and that's at least aspirationally how I think of it. What do you think about that, Eva? Well, I agree with that too, because what, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around um, our justice system and whether um, all um, litigants are treated fairly and whether, um, you know, the, the court system is impartial as a whole toward, toward um, every litigant, regardless of their station in life or gender or color. And so I think I absolutely agree that, that that's another one of the aspirational goals that we have for, for our justice system and that Lady Justice symbolizes. And, and we each interpret that in a little different way, but, but I agree. So the other thing is that I know that all of us always go out to elementary schools and talk to um, children and a lot of times um, I'll show them a picture of Lady Justice and the number one question I get is all these little boys want to know about her sword and um, they're always curious about that. So Beth, um, I'm curious what your thoughts and if you've ever um, talked to any of them um, about the sword to the children. Well, I clearly need to talk to some more elementary school children because I have not actually received that question, believe it or not. Um, the kids always want to know, how much money do you make? Um, and 
Um, so they, but this, now that I have had the opportunity to think about it for our podcast, I will have the answer ready to go when the school children ask me. Um, so the sword, the obvious symbolism of the sword is the power of the justice system or the power of the judiciary. It, it sounds pretty trite, but whenever we're looking at a case involving someone's liberty, whether it's life in prison, whether it's um, any other, you know, any other restriction, you know, you, you are reminded of how powerful the judiciary is. You know, we control as a group. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible responsibility also, but it's also a very powerful position that we're in. And I think the sword is an obvious reminder of that. But what I like about in doing the reading that we did for, for today, what I liked to read about was the transparency part of it. You know, the sword is out there. You can see the sword. It's not hidden. Um, there's not something, you know, what we do. I know what all of us try to do. Some of it is behind closed doors in the process of coming up with the right decision. But most of what we do is very transparent. We're public bodies. We try to be as open as we can about our processes. So I think my favorite part about the sword is that you can see it. It's not, it's, it's not even in a sheath. It's just out there. It's ready to go. Um, and it's clear what it is we do. So that's my kind of point of view on the sword. So I'll, I'll tell you a little what I sometimes tell um, the, the younger children that ask me um, to try to explain um, a little bit is that um, sometimes I tell them that if you think about a sword, that a sword is different than like a knife that you cut like a steak with in the sense that it's sharp on both sides. Um, and so I tell them that sometimes that the, the cases that come to our court cut both ways and that they're difficult and that um, it's not, you know, I think when a party comes into our court or you hear one side that you think it's obvious um, that it would only cut one way that the law would um, and you see it just in your perspective, but that actually the law, you know, the way when they're presented to us that you can see them both ways, you know, on either side of that sword. Um, and so um, it's dangerous to kind of just look at it one-sided um, so that's how I kind of look at it. I don't know if anybody else in the world looks at it that way, but that um, it's kind of, there's two sides to every case. Um, I don't know. Maybe they just still think they just want to play with the sword, probably. <laughs> Which is totally understandable. <laughs> but um, one thing that struck me is that Lady Justice has been the personification and symbolism of justice, as we said, going back to Egypt and Rome, yet for so long women were barred from either holding positions in the law, and then for so long, and we still are underrepresented in the judiciary. So Beth, I'll ask you, um, does it strike you as strange that a, you know, a woman could be the personification of justice, yet not represented fully in the judiciary? Well, I, I think we probably could do a whole podcast on uh, women in the law, women in the judiciary. Um, but my short answer for today, I think, is that it's been a process, you know, to evolve from, you know, women being barred, women not having property. I mean, you, depending on how far you go back, um, you know, all kinds of um, restrictions or limitations, um, but I like to look at it at kind of on a going forward basis. And this is a, 
issue near and dear to my heart right now because I'm jealous of the three of you because we're going to move on and talk uh, to your new colleagues who are women. And I did not get a new female colleague uh, with the last election. And so I'm actually spending some time trying to figure out why women in West Virginia are, we actually are underrepresented, not just in the judiciary, but in the law. Um, I think, I'm sure there's a lot of interesting reasons. I don't think any of them really have to do with anyone trying to keep women out. I think sometimes um, we can create hurdles for ourselves. Um, and part of that's, you know, the intimidation of running for public office. Bridget, you know more recently than all of us uh, how hard that is. Um, but I think that I'm excited that we can look forward and try to continue to change it. Bridget or Eva, do you have anything that you want to add? Um, I think it's a um, really important topic. And I guess I, I want to echo the one, the, one of the, th many of the things Beth said, but one in particular is we maybe should think about a whole podcast on this topic because I, I feel like there would be lots of sub questions and um, interesting parts of this conversation. Um, and Michigan just became, uh, and we'll talk to my newest colleague in a moment, um, a majority dominated uh, court by women. So we now have four of seven. Um, and it's pretty significant, uh, not, you know, not only because um, it's, it, you know, it, it doesn't happen that often yet. I, 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 I like, I like Beth's perspective. I like looking forward, not backwards, but um, it's it's significant for so many of our um, the kids you know the kids in the state. I have a couple of my women colleagues whose kids are who still have daughters who are in elementary school and high school have commented that um, they think it's really really cool. So I think it's really really cool too for that reason. Yeah, and I, and I agree with that. Texas, for the first time, with the addition of my newest colleague, who you'll meet in, in just a little bit, has four women on the Texas Supreme Court out of nine. Um, and it, it's important because it does build confidence in the justice system when the public looks at our institutions and they see um, there are men and women and there are people of color and it does help build trust and confidence in the justice system in addition to bringing those different perspectives which are important when you're debating the most important legal issues um, in your state and in the country sometimes so and i do think it's an entire podcast about running for office as a woman and what we can do as women to empower um, other women to, to take those chances and, and and to learn from our shared experiences so um well the you know we became four out of seven the women in 2015 on the Arkansas Supreme Court and um, I think Bridget you'll notice even more um, in Eva as well now that you're at the numbers you're at that when school groups come into the court and they visually see that um, sometimes they'll say I'll say well what surprised you about the court today or what you heard and that's one of the things they'll say like I didn't expect to see all the women you know <laughs> um, that visual effect uh, makes a huge difference um, that's pretty impressive and amazing and none of us had that experience when we were certainly growing up or you know younger in law school Well, let's bring in a guest before we hear from the new women justices on our courts. 
I had the opportunity one afternoon to talk to Yale Law professor Judith Resnick. She co-authored a book called Representing Justice about the history of the imagery of Lady Justice. The book is hundreds of pages, so we obviously can't go into all of it, but here's a part of our conversation. In many parts of the world, uh, a building is identified by sticking a stone woman in front. And so trying to understand something about how those two things got connected and also realizing the remarkable political, social, colonial, literary energy it took, it takes to keep that association going. I mean, all of us can buy little tchotchke pins that say, you know, that have <laughs> this imagery on it. So it takes a lot to think that there could be a transnational vocabulary, not everywhere, but in a lot of different places that uses scales, swords sometimes, blindfolds sometimes, and female uh, imagery to say, hey, law is supposed to be here. Um, the uh, Uganda Women's Judges Association has wonderful kente cloth, a picture, I think we have it in the book of this wonderful orange and you know this, this reappropriation of it and embrace of, of an English colonial marker, um, but that is then reiterated with their own uh, cloth and voice and, and authority. Well, and you know, we titled our podcast Lady Justice, and that was without us really having the full understanding. And then now we've been reading and reading all your research and learning more about something that we, I think, took for granted that I'll admit I took for granted. And we have spent time on our podcast and we will continue talking about women justices. And we all feel strongly about the need for more sort of diversification on the bench. Um, over the course of the 20th century, the idea that only a very small subset of the population looked like and were judges came to be understood as a genuine problem to be solved. What I think is important is to realize that it isn't only women judges who are now news, the new entry into court, but actually women and men in all across classes and people called employees and people called family members, it's hard uh, for any of us to remember or, or know, let alone remember, that before the 1940s, there wasn't much of a thing called family law because the people in families didn't have any rights to exit with resources and support. So women as petitioners and litigators and in, in family cases in, uh, as, um, at risk of harm from physical assault, all of these are path-breaking ideas that we come to take for granted as well now that tenants and um, victims of violence can enter courts. It's not obvious that therefore the imagery from a Renaissance period that was hierarchical, exclusive, and class race-based is necessarily the exact thing we want to say, oh yes, let's do this. And in fact, we you know argue a bit that if at the time of the Renaissance, virtues went and were kind of traveled in packs. If you're the you're a great group of four because rent, because justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude <laughs> were often displayed together. And the idea that you just have one attribute when in fact justice takes uh, a lot of prudence. And um, if one were to deploy this kind of in imagery, you'd certainly want 
um, a richer display. And then in a world of inclusiveness, you'd wanna say, and to the extent these are female bodies, they come in all sizes and shapes. Um, in Los Angeles, the downtown criminal court has a huge statue of a justice, a woman uh, who's certainly not Caucasian and she's got neat, broidered, braided, uh, objects and the like, and the it's the um, Santa Ana District Court, which has a huge mural of all sorts of different people on it. So there's a lot of ways in which 21st century and late 20th century courthouses have tried to mark that there are a whole bunch of people walking in the door who didn't look like the people before. So um, how can we physically uh, materialize some of the things to celebrate and how can we preserve public spaces in which people interact where everybody's in the same place at the same time. That was a discussion with Yale Law professor and author Judith Resnick, whose book Representing Justice examines the history of Lady Justice as a symbol of equality and fairness in her many forms depicted throughout the world. You can see some of those images and a link to her book on our website, ladyjusticepod.com. So we've spent a lot of time today talking about Lady Justice, and one exciting thing that occurred at three of our courts is that we each have a new Lady Justice. We have Justice Rebecca Huddle, who has joined the Texas Supreme Court. Justice Elizabeth Welch has, was elected to the Michigan Supreme Court, and Justice Barbara Webb was elected and is joining me on the Arkansas Supreme Court. So we wanted to welcome our new colleagues and bring them into the podcast and give them a chance to ask us a question about being a lady justice or working on the state Supreme Court. And so Bridget, I'll let you go first if you want and introduce your new justice. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to introduce you all to um, my friend and now my colleague, Justice Elizabeth Welch. Um, it's very hard to uh, introduce Elizabeth in one minute, but I know that we, we're more interested in hearing the talk, the, the, the back and forth between us. So Elizabeth, uh, don't don't hold it against me because I could introduce you for a very long time, but she's had a, um, an exceptional career as a lawyer. Um, Justice Walker, you'll be uh, probably pleased to know that she went to Ohio, the, the Ohio State Law School and practiced law and then in her own uh, smaller firm as an employment lawyer for, for most of her career. That was her day job. She, she gave um, excellent employment law advice to um, small businesses, nonprofits, bigger businesses. Um, and um, she is an expert, the first expert in employment law in my court, and I believe me, we're already taking advantage of that. It's quite nice. Um, but, but in her time um, after nine to five, she spent a lot of time working in and on uh, issues around public schools, um, conservation, which is really important in Michigan, which uh, she was the, uh, the president of the board of the League of Conservation Voters, um, and on voting rights issues. And again, I could go on and on, but it is um, a delight to have her as a new colleague on the Michigan Supreme Court. And I can't wait to hear what she's gonna ask you guys and what you're gonna answer. Great, uh, thank you, Chief Justice. I really, really appreciate that. Um, I had the privilege of um, campaigning at the same time as the Chief Justice. So um, we, we had the privilege of um, working together on lots of things the past year. We've spent a lot of time together on Zoom. <laughs> so, so my question is, is you've all been justices for several years now. What do you know now that you wish you had known back when you first started? I'll go first. This is Eva Guzman. I'll, I'll take that question. There's so much. Um, I, 
uh, served on an intermediate appellate court for 10 years before I got to the Supreme Court of Texas. And I think one, one thing that you know, I wish I understood a little better was um, the idea of deliberations among nine people. We always sat in three judge panels and it's a lot harder to achieve consensus when, when you have you know, a total of nine justices around that table. And I've learned that sometimes you have to be right all by yourself, as a dear friend said. And that means that, to me, it means that um, dissenting views are important. It's, it's really great when the court can speak with one voice, but dissenting views can be powerful uh, motivators for change in the future. So don't be afraid to, to speak up. Inaction is much worse than reje rejection. Um, and speak up even when it won't change the outcome. So it's taken me a while to get to that place where um, I've really understood how powerful it can be to speak up with a different voice, even when you know it won't change the outcome. And that's a different dynamic. Thank you for that excellent question and welcome to the Judiciary Justice Welch. Um, it's exciting to have you on the podcast with us today. And this is Beth. I will go next and welcome you, Justice Welch, and thank you. And first of all, uh, OH. <laughs> okay. um, and I'm sure you've seen, if you haven't, the Chief's um, excellent photo, which he probably keeps hidden away from when we may or may not have had a bet on the Ohio State-Michigan game on Twitter. Um, anyway, thank you, Bridget, for keeping your coach. We're appreciative of that. Uh, hopefully, the good times will continue. Um, Anyway, that is a wonderful question. And coming from the private sector as you are, as I did, I did you know, 26 years of labor and employment law, and it sounds like you've had a similar background. I knew intellectually that you know, we're going into the public sector and things are different, um, but I wish I had spent more time talking to folks about the transition from the private to the public sector and just having a real understanding of how important transparency is and how important um, you know, your accountability to the public and, you know, the, the, I knew that, you know, we're entrusted with the taxpayers dollars and everything we do. And, uh, but that part of this office and, you know, about half of what we do is administrative on our Supreme court, you know, I was all set for the judging part. Um, but I was, pr I probably could have been better equipped for the administrative part. Um, so if I had gone back, I don't know if I could have changed anything in our colorful, in the colorful four years I've had, but, um, but I probably would have talked to more people about that part of my role. Well, so this is Rhonda, and I am very um, excited and pleased to introduce um, Justice Barbara Webb, who has joined me on the Arkansas Supreme Court. And it's really nice that she has a diverse legal background because that gives her lots of experience to bring to all the different types of cases we hear. Um, and like Bridget, it's hard to get it down to a minute, but I think I set that role, so I'm gonna be good. Um, she was an elected prosecuting attorney and she served on the Arkansas Ethics Commission. She served on our state crime board and she also served on the US Department of Justice Anti-Terrorism Task Force. Um, she also was one of our trial judges and she was chief law judge for the Arkansas Workers' Comp um, Commission. So you can see she's done a lot in her background. Um, but I think more importantly is um, she's a friend of mine. 
Um, and so that's what makes this even more exciting. Um, so Barbara, I realize you've just joined the court, but do you have a question um, for one of my friend justices from the other states? Yes, I do. Um, and I guess you may have answered it just now, so maybe I should ask a different question. <laughs> um, what specific advice do you have to those of us that are transitioning to a collaborative judicial decision making? And how do we best make those type of group decisions? I actually think that's a great question. This is Bridget. I, I appreciate that that question. And I, I, um, I bet uh, the things that make for successful collaborative decision making are things you all have like done your whole life anyway, because we're talking to women. Oops, did I just say that part out loud? I guess I did. Um, I, you know, I actually think this is what's really important and interesting about multi-member courts is we, we, we make every decision by committee. Um, unlike judges who, you know, many of you were trial judges, I actually never was, but, um, but I was, uh, you know, an associate dean where I made decisions, you know, sort of by myself. But on a multi-member court, it doesn't really matter what I think unless three people agree with me. And, you know, in Texas, you need, you need four. Um, so the relationships turn out to be as important as anything else in the job. And so forming um, good relationships with all of your colleagues, even the ones you don't agree with most of the time or you don't agree with some of the time, um, is really important because um, when you have a good relationship with someone, they're going to be they're going to be likely to give you a, a, a good, honest listen um, when when the time comes, and that's what it's all about. And if you're a um, a bad friend today, uh, you know tomorrow you're going to have another decision to make together, and they might remember it. Um, but I guess I feel like a lot of that's going to be intuitive to all of you because I feel like um, this is one of the skills that women develop. Uh, sort of just by by the way we have to live and navigate our lives. Um, but but being a good listener today is going to matter a lot tomorrow. Every day um, it matters how you um, care and feed those relationships. It's it's all about relationships. I don't know, Eva. What do you think? I agree with that. I would also say um, as Justice Scalia. Uh, equipped um, in, in its typical fashion is if you can't have a disagreement, you know, with a colleague on, on an issue about of law, leave that, um, that conference room and go have lunch together and remain friends, um, you know, go get another job, he said, <laughs> because that's part of it. It's, it's this dialogue, it's this mutual respect, and there are times when you won't agree but it's so important to be able to leave the conference room and have lunch together. We had a chief justice at the uh, 14th Court of Appeals um, who, who famously always said, well, that just can't be the law. And he was very strong in his views, but he'd walk around after conference the entire floor and just say, you want to go to lunch? You want to go to lunch? You want to go to lunch? And we'd go get um, Chinese food. And that really um, goes to, to Bridget's point about those relationships and their work. And there are days when you might have to wait a couple of days before you go to lunch <laughs> because you know you need some space, but it's important to, to do that and to be proactive in that way. So Eva, I think that um, you also have a new colleague um, if you want to introduce her. We do. We are so pleased to have Justice Rebecca Icebudel Huddle on the Supreme Court of Texas. She was appointed by Governor Abbott in October of 2020. 
She is the second Latina to serve on our court. Uh, Justice Huddle earned her undergraduate degree in political science at Stanford University and her law degree at the University of Texas School of Law. I knew her in Houston. She is a friend and, and she's just a, a wonderful, wonderful lawyer and now judge. She entered her public service in um, 2012 when she was appointed to the Intermediate Appellate Court by then Governor Rick Perry. Then she went back to practice law at Baker Botts, where she had become a partner in 2008. She's engaged in many, many community activities. Justice Huddle and her husband, Greg, have two daughters, and we're super excited to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Justice Huddle. Do you have a question for us? Well, thanks so much uh, for letting me join you. I do have a question. Um, so one practical piece of, of info I like to ask people who I admire and who have big jobs, as, as everyone on this, um, on this podcast does, is about your life hacks. So we've all sort of famously heard about how um, Albert Einstein and, and Steve Jobs, for example, just wore the same outfit every day to conserve their mental energy and time for and the things that meant the most to them. So I was hoping you would share one of your work-related or not work-related uh, life hacks. Well, welcome, Justice, uh, to your court. And thank you for an excellent question. I love these questions that kind of veer off into not directly related to law. Um, we're gonna get to some of those for you, I think, in a couple of minutes, but... Um, for a life hack that I will share, okay, well, as my colleagues know, one of my passions is well-being, lawyer well-being, judge well-being. I think it's incredibly important that we pay attention to taking care of ourselves. The old put on your own oxygen mask before you help others put their oxygen mask on. And um, one that I'll share, and I started it a couple years ago, but for the last three or four months, I've really been committed to it, and that is meditation. And we all have read the science on meditation and how, um, and, and, you know, I'm not going to go on and on about that. But what I know is that when I sit and what I try to do is first thing in the morning, I don't look at any electronics. I try not to. Um, sometimes you can't avoid it. But I don't read email. I don't check any Twitter. I don't do any of that. I just do sit in 20 minutes of meditation in the morning. I use an app because I'm pretty sure I couldn't manage it all by myself. Um, I use Headspace, which there's Calm, there's all these other apps out there. And I just think that when you spend a little time tending to your brain the way we are better trained to tend to our bodies in terms of exercise and strength training and all of that, um, that it is really helpful. So that's my life hack. This is Bridget. I, I admire that and uh, have to confess to having like tried many times to start um, a, med a daily meditation practice and have failed. And, it, and this will tell you something. My kids, my adult sons gave me a big Headspace gift certificate maybe a year and a half ago for my birthday. They were like, mom, we kind of think you might want to like do some meditation. So I, I, may, I might have to circle back with Beth later about how she got herself to finally like make it a daily practice because that, that might be a good goal for me this year. Um, I don't, I, I, this is a wonderful question, um, Justice Huddle, I think, and welcome, and welcome by the way, we're, we're, it's great to have you. But I don't know if this is a hack as much as a, um, a philosophy. I, I once wrote this, um, I once wrote this article for the ABA journal called There Is No Work-Life Balance. 
I think for uh, folks with jobs like ours, um, one of the things that makes it hardest on us is a trying is when we try to achieve work life life balance um, because it's it's just not really a thing at least not day to day or week to week or month to month if you have a busy uh, you know a busy and demanding job and and one of the things I like to tell young women is give yourself a friggin' break. You don't have to achieve balance. Think of it more as um, integration. How can you make it all work? How can you be there for your family or your friends or whoever is you know, important in your life when you need to be um, and rely on others to make sure the work gets done? And how can you be there for um, your work and your duties when you need to be and rely on others to help you with the other pieces of it? And I like to think of work-life balance over the course of my career. There were definitely years where life took more from me than work. I had my oldest kid had epilepsy as a kid and spent a lot of time in and out of a hospital. And I feel like there were years where I was not a judge, but I was a faculty member at the University of Michigan Law School. And I was like a, me a mediocre one maybe for a little while there. But you know what? My colleagues helped me, picked up the pieces. Um, and then there were times where I was running for statewide office and my kids basically say they learned how to like, you know, get rides from strangers. Um, Work-life balance over the course of the career, give yourself a break. You don't have to do everything each day, each week, each month, or even each year. Give yourself a break. Well, and I'll add to the, you mentioned um, the clothes, um, and my husband knows I do this, and people think I'm crazy in my work, but I feel like women especially, we have trouble figuring out what to wear in the morning, um, and I found that I could waste so much time going down that rabbit hole. And so like once a month, I go through and match all my outfits, um, like pants, top, whatever, dress. And there, I do have a rather large closet, I will admit. Um, but I basically, they're all lined up in my closet. And then I started systematically, I wear them in order. Um, so I will take like a Sunday afternoon and they're all sitting there and I, I go through them, make sure whatever fits, what doesn't fit is moved out of that section and they're lined up. And so I could, I will make it through like, you know, a month um, of no decision making about what I wear and I wear whatever is next in line and there's no decision. If, if I don't like it enough to wear it, then that probably means that it's a good time for that to go to Goodwill. Um, um, but anyway, and so I only have to decide once a month what I'm gonna wear for an entire month. Um, so that's my little life hack. Um, and then quickly, my work hack is four monitors. I cannot work without four monitors. Um, if you think about it, the record, the briefs, Westlaw, and then um, the opinion or your clerk's memo. So um, with that, um, we also want to know um, something more about our new justices. And so we are gonna put them through the lightning round um, that Beth used um, a couple of episodes ago and see where they line up. Um, so for our new justices, um, if you can give a quick rapid response to the following questions and we will go alphabetical. Um, and that means Barbara, Elizabeth and Rebecca. So first, what is your favorite food to eat or prepare? If you ask my husband, I don't cook a lot. Um, you can't go wrong with pizza. Everybody <laughs> loves pizza. Uh, and um, like many of you, I'm not the main cook in my household. So um, I have the good fortune of having a husband who's a tremendous cook. Um, so we enjoy a lot of fresh Lake Michigan seafood, um, you know, or lake food, I should say, fish. Um, but I, we have lately been doing Friday night takeout Mexicans from a local haunt that we like. 
So I can only think of foods in the dessert category here. Um, and so I landed on my favorite being carrot cake. Oh, that sounds great. Um, it sounds like you guys would fit along with all of us really well. Now, the only thing that I think the four of us have disagreed about vehemently and actually um, thought about on this podcast is this question. Do you prefer one space or two spaces at the end of a sentence? And again, we'll start with Barbara. Two. <laughs> and this is Elizabeth, too. I can't even believe we're having this discussion. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> too. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we're winning here. <laughs> I think it might show a generational... Bridget, we may have to send our new colleagues to different court. Honestly, if I had known that, Elizabeth, I would have told people to vote for somebody else, really. I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, Barbara. We're in trouble now. I didn't even know there was a discussion of this. All right. Well, the next question is, um, were you the first person in your family to attend law school? Barbara. I was. I came from a family of engineers, um, and all kinds of engineers. And so I was the black sheep of the family, wound up going to law school and eventually wound up here. So. Uh, yeah, and this is Elizabeth. Likewise, I was first in my family as well. Me too. My mom was a seamstress, and uh, so I was, we were the first generation to go to college, and I was the um, first to go to law school. I think that's fantastic that we have seven women state su supreme justices that all of us were first generation lawyers. Okay, so another interesting question has have any of you been told about any new responsibilities you have as the junior justice on your court? So we'll start with you, Justice Webb, Barbara. Yeah, I think I was on, on a conference for less than five minutes when I, it was explained to me I would open the door for the other justices <laughs> during in-person conferences, which right now, of course, we're not doing. So I guess I get a break for a while. So that's apparently my responsibility. So um, this is Elizabeth, and uh, the Chief Justice is on with me. So um, I, I have to say there hasn't been anything that stood out immediately. Uh, I know uh, when we go into conference discussions, um, where we you know discuss the cases that are before us, uh, the Junior Justice kicks things off, um, and that. But af after that, it rotates. So um, that's about the only thing that comes to mind immediately. But perhaps there will be some things. I'm only a couple weeks into my official duties, so. Um, and, she, and she's only performed her official official duties by Zoom, so she doesn't yet know that we do have a tradition that the Junior Justice, when we are in conference gets waters or what other, whatever beverages folks want, or, or at least that was the tradition until uh, Justice Beth Clement uh, kind of blew it up and said, that's ridiculous. Which, <laughs> so, I don't know, we might try and revive it with you though, we'll see. <laughs> a, we'll see when we're all finally together again, how things pan out. How about you, Rebecca? So nothing really so far that pertains only to the junior judge. Um, I did learn about a tradition that I think is rotating with all of the justices, so that's very nice. But what the one thing I've done like that so far is bring breakfast tacos uh, for the morning of oral argument. Um, this is um, Eva. We forgot to tell um, Rebecca that the junior justice has to lead us in our court song, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> Just the Texas court song. Glad you don't have that. <laughs> Rebecca, I did get to experience the Texas Supreme Court breakfast tacos, and I have done nothing but talk about that 
to our core over and over and over again. That That is just fantastic. Um, well, so thank you for joining us for another episode of Lady Justice. It was especially great to meet um, the three new women that have joined our state Supreme Courts. We feel very sorry for Beth and, um, and hopefully she will have a, a, someone to join her um, on the West Virginia Supreme Court before long. And it, I think what we need is we just need COVID to lift so we can all come visit you, Beth, in West Virginia. Um, but with that, we hope you have a good day and thank you for listening to Lady Justice Women of the Court. Visit ladyjusticepod.com to listen to more episodes, find links to our social media, and submit a comment or question. Opinions expressed on this program are the justices alone and not necessarily those of their respective courts. Take care and until next time.